Hello and welcome to the November edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and I will be speaking to Rabbi Jeffrey Newman, who recently got caught up in the Extinction Rebellion climate change protests in central London. He was depicted as being dragged away at one stage by police, causing a little bit of an outcry amongst many members of the Jewish community. Well, I'm very pleased to say he's here in one piece and I'll be chatting to him a little later. I'm Kate Fulton, and I'm very lucky to be talking to Rabbi Mendy Lent from the Chabad in Nottingham. And they have been extraordinarily busy over the last few weeks, given that all of the festivals have been falling during term time. And we give a bit of an insight into what Chabad actually does for the Jewish students. And I'm Clive Roslin, and I'll be talking to Mark Goldman, and he's written the most amazing book about his mother, whom he's called Tilly. Well, she was known as Tilly. And she was a New York City girl, according to the book. Fascinating stories, not only in book form, but also with many fascinating pictures. And as if all of that isn't enough, we will also hear from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips, who will be telling us a little bit about the food connection to this year's Mitzvah Day. And our rabbinic thought for the month will come from Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main news stories from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. Labour has been urged to expel a left-wing activist who was shortlisted to be its hopeful for West Midlands mayor because she shared a post in 2013 about Iceland arresting 10 Rothschild bankers. Salma Yacoub is the former vice chair of George Galloway's now defunct Respect Party and her candidacy was welcomed by John Landsman on Labour's ruling national executive and by Julia Bard of the Jewish Socialist Group. Ms Yacoub has said that she has a long record of challenging anti-Semitism, but is aware that she's made comments that have caused offence and that need to be clarified. Still in the Midlands, Nottingham Trent University has expelled a student who posted a picture of himself on a dating app pointing and laughing at a sleeping Orthodox Jewish man on the London Tube. A Palestinian flag had been photoshopped over the man's mouth. The 20-year-old student, known only as Jonathan, was told the action was offensive and not recognised as part of the university's culture. A primary school in Radlett in Hertfordshire has permanently excluded an agency teacher after she told a class of 10 and 11-year-olds that she would ship them off to the gas chambers if they didn't finish off their work quickly. The class in Newbury's primary school included Jewish children. Parents on a WhatsApp group had threatened to withdraw their children unless action was taken. Transport for London has said it will immediately remove all unauthorised posters on underground trains, urging people to boycott the sports brand Puma because of its links with Israel. TfL doesn't allow adverts of a political nature and said that the posters, which appeared on the Northern and Bakerloo lines, were an act of vandalism. A memorial has been held to mark the one-year anniversary of the Pittsburgh Synagogue Massacre. Eleven candles burned on a table at the Tree of Life shawl, representing those who were killed in the attack. Members of the Jewish community were joined by Christian and Muslim groups, as well as city and state officials. And finally, a survey by the dating app JSwipe found that 84% of 18 to 24-year-olds described their Jewish identity as important or very important – J-Swipe questioned 4,000 Jewish singles of all ages earlier this year. It seemed that the younger the respondent, the more likely they were to want a Jewish wedding with a rabbi officiating.
60% of those who took part in the survey came from America and the rest from numerous countries including Israel, Canada, the UK, France, Germany and Brazil. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to the November edition of The Jewish Views. And just before we meet our first guest, I thought that I would make a bit of a confession. I know that Yom Kippur has been and gone. No, I know that Yom Kippur has been and gone. I know that it's not the time, as it were, for confession. But I'm actually quite sad. And no funny comments, please, (laughs) either. But I'm quite sad because the Chagim is sort of over with now. And I feel a bit empty. It's, oh, yeah, it's really strange really because there's a bit of a, a, a hype surrounding them, isn't there? And then suddenly, yes. bang, it's gone. It's a bit like an anticlimax after a bar mitzvah. That's absolutely true. Don't worry, because uh, with it, like everything else, particularly when you reach my age, the hagim come every other week. <laughs> <laughs> but as we are in the moment with Phil, we're going to share his pain because actually there's nothing now. I mean, Hanukkah isn't actually a hag that we, that we celebrate in terms of sort of days off, but... It has felt, to those of us who do both days, quite a long one. I mean, we've had Shabbat, for those of you who, do, who observe Shabbat, and then followed by, you can just about breathe on Sunday, and then you've got Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday. And it went on for weeks. And it oh, did. See. I mean, some of us haven't had a run-up to a full week at work for yes. quite a while. But maybe that's why I'm feeling it in particular, is because it has been in such a way that actually there's not been much of a chance to breathe. Because normally in between the Chagim, we sort of think to ourselves, OK, right, we've got this one out of the way. Now next up, Sukkot. Right, next, Simchat Torah. And we do actually have a little yeah. bit of time in between. But we sort of haven't this time round. Got nothing now. Because, and I no. think a lot of the time that happens when the Hagim fall on Shabbat because it's sort of all done in one then, isn't it? But this yes. time absolutely yes. none did. And as a result of it, it sort of was much more spread out. So I'm feeling very... I just feel a bit strange. I feel like there's all of this talk in the run-up to it and now it's all done for another year. And yes. 5780 begins. Uh, in fact, I thought I was beginning to think that I saw the synagogue more often than I saw my house. <laughs> I thought you did anyway, you from a... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I lived just up the road from it. Well, I dare say, Clive, you're spot on that before we know it, it will be round again very quickly. So I don't think that there'll be very much time to miss it just No, yet. it'll be Rosh Hashanah within the next week or two. In fact, so. what are you doing to get ready for Rosh Hashanah? Oh, <laughs> I think you're getting my Hanukkah out first and then I can sort of look <laughs> forward to something before then. Yes. <laughs> uh, what can I say other than uh, we hope that you enjoyed your Hagim at home and I think that without further ado, let's meet our first guest here on The Jewish Views because you are listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, in the past few weeks, parts of London were brought to a standstill virtually as the Extinction Rebellion group continued their protest over climate change. What's the Jewish connection, I hear you ask in all of this? Well, our next guest was one of the protesters who experienced the potentially long arm of the law, and he's here, I'm very pleased to say in one piece, to tell us about it. Rabbi Jeffrey Newman, the emeritus rabbi at Finchley Reform Synagogue. You obviously believe in the cause. Why? It isn't the Extinction Rebellion that I believe in. That's a methodology. It's a way of trying to enable not just the Jewish community, but I'm there on behalf or representing or a part of, that's perhaps the best word to use, a part of the Jewish community. It's very much to try to enable people to recognize the urgency of the issues that we're facing. I think that 
There are very few people now who deny that climate change is happening. There are even very few who think that it has nothing to do with fossil fuels, the use of oils. It's well accepted. But the speed of change is something that we haven't yet been able fully to confront. So it's that that Extinction Rebellion has brought to the forefront of the, the agenda. And I think there's no denying the way in which that has happened, for good or for bad, particular methodologies may or may not have been acceptable, but the fact of the issues is now very clear. Let me also address the question that you've raised from a Jewish perspective. It happened, I mean, what comes to mind is that it happened that the protest that I took part in was over the festival of Sukkot. And Sukkot is very much a Thanksgiving harvest festival with willows, myrtles, the lulav and the etrog. And I had those in my hand during the period of my arrest. And for people who didn't see, you were also wearing your talit as well. As well. So it was very much a religious Jewish occasion, but it was also connected with the earth. And Judaism is a religion which goes back to our rootedness in earth. And I think that because Jewish people, we as a people, have been uprooted from the land for 2,000 years, two and a half thousand years, really. We've not had our own land. We forget we're a very urban people, especially in the last couple of centuries. And we forget just how much Judaism is based upon God's initial commandments to humankind that we should care and look after the earth in which we're put. And so much of Judaism, the celebrations that we have in the Psalms, are all about the wonders of creation. So for me, it's very difficult um, to think why or how it could be that Jews don't immediately recognize that we are people of the earth. No, I think that there will be very few who disagree with the statement that Jews are people of the earth, but what I think you'll find that an awful lot of Jews and non-Jews alike have a particular issue with is the way that we have to take Extinction Rebellion at surface value here because this is what we, has brought you to us ultimately, is taking part in that particular protest. And there will be a lot of people who question whether or not their methodology is the right way to go about it bringing London to a standstill and actually arguably causing more pollution for doing so by the traffic that has to sit there and clogging up the air with their fumes exhausting all over the place. That is what an awful lot of people struggle with. And potentially it's not so much the message at the core of it, it's the way of getting that message out there. Do you see that that could be a problem? I think if it were the only methodology, you would be absolutely right. And I think as well that there is another whole side to Extinction Rebellion, which is called regenerative culture. And this is about how we rebuild. How do we move from the world in which we are living at this moment to the next stage of circular economy, of modes of transport which are much more friendly to the environment? How do we ensure that we 
are sensitive to plants and trees. There's an enormous campaign which we're um, at, the, at the beginning of for the necessity of replanting billions of trees. And Extinction Rebellion is not to be identified only with the disruption of London. No, but then that's important that you get that across because, of course, there are, unfortunately, for whatever reason, a lot of people who are understandably affected by it and that's what they do associate. Now, a funny thing might have happened to you when you were in the back of the police van. Would you care to elaborate? The inspector who had arrested me was in the van with about 10 policemen while the service, the Shakrat service, the morning service for Sukkot was taking place outside and at a certain moment during the service as you know the tradition is for the Hakfa'ot to take place, the circling with the Lula Vetrog and so on around the synagogue so XR Jews about 30 of them circled around the van and the inspector looked for a moment and then said I think we're being kettled <laughs> More importantly, though, did you manage to carry out what you needed to do, though? Well, I was inside the van being able to join in with the service to some extent. I mean, the, 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 the incident went further. I said, I don't think you're being kettled. I think they're going around seven times. They'll then blow the shofar. The walls of the van will disappear and I'll be out free. Well, you're here, so it obviously worked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm here. It worked. You're right. I suppose that the final point that I have to make is that what can we and should we as Jews be doing to, as it were, better ourselves and not necessarily be seen to support or not support Extinction Rebellion, but in your opinion now, as Rabbi Jeffrey Newman, what should us as Jews be doing to better ourselves in the way you believe? First of all, every single person can eat less meat, drive less, fly less. And and this is a very difficult one for the Jewish people. Think about the numbers of children that you're going to have. That's a hard message, but I will nevertheless say it. The other side is that we're not only individuals, we're also all of us members of families, of communities, of organizations, of businesses. And there we have much more opportunity to bring change in the situation in which we find ourselves. So if you're a member of synagogue, try and get your synagogue to join up with eco-synagogues. If you are interested in the fate of small islands, know that the Commonwealth Jewish Council with the backing of the chief rabbi, is working to see how the Jewish communities throughout the Commonwealth are going to be able to provide support for small islands. And as a third area, get in touch with Shema. And you've heard that properly. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. Hear, listen, understand, and act. 
the organization called Shema is entirely dedicated to doing what you ask, which is helping the Jewish people to see how, from their own situation, they can bring about very speedy and rapid change. Because in the next 18 months, we have to steeply bend carbon emissions if we're to have any chance of keeping the planet below two-degree warming, let alone 1.5 degrees. Rabbi Jeffrey Newman, Emeritus Rabbi at Finchley Reform Synagogue, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on this month's episode of The Jewish Views. And I think that no matter what side of the fence one sits on on this particular discussion, we are very pleased that you're in one piece to tell us about it. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. And for many years, Jews have played an intrinsic part in New York City life. A new book by author and historian Mark Goldman looks at just one of those lives. Tilly, a New York City girl, 1906 to 2001, is more than just a biography. It's memoirs, photos offset against documents that illustrates perfectly the life of one Tilly Goldman. If you haven't quite worked it out, Tilly was Mark's mother, and I'm delighted to say to find out more about her life and why he wanted to put this book together, Mark Goldman joins me now from Buffalo in the United States. Right, can you tell me why you decided to put the book together, Mark? Well, I, I've done a fair amount of family history, not my own. I'd recently done a biography of a, an important local figure in late 19th, early 20th century Buffalo life. And my daughter suggested that I do something about my mother. She apparently had, when my mother was 70, which was in 1976, had hired somebody to record her memories. And uh, my daughter had this transcribed recording, and I hadn't read it. And I read it, and I thought there was a great deal there. She said, why don't you do something on your own family instead of this other guy's? So I looked at it, and in fact, there was a great deal there. It provided the sort of the framework of a life. And I went from there and began to contextualize her diaries and her memoirs and filled it in with the details of where she lived, how she lived, the rest of her family. So I went into a great deal of background on New York City in the early 20th century, her neighborhood. She lived up in, as a child, she lived in Harlem. And her social life, her family life, and the life of her, her married life, all of which I was able to get some, a, a lot of from her memoir. And then I expanded that with historical material. And I also put a call out for family members to send me photographs. And a, a treasure trove of photographs appeared. So now I had a basic framework for a book, which was this written memoir a bunch of photographs, and then the context, which I was able to create. So, it, uh, you know, it's kind of, a, those are the three good elements of a, of a biography. It's absolutely, may I say, it's absolutely fascinating. And the photographs have completely caught my eye and has made me think a great deal. Now, I know it was all in New York, but her family came from, originally from Poland, is that right? Yeah, one side from Poland, her father's side from Romania. And they came to New York. Now, the photographs I find 
extraordinary, and I'm being very personal here, because I have from the same area as you, and my actually my grandparents came from Latvia, and it's, it's there are similar stories to your to your wonderful mother. And can you tell me what was the most exciting thing about her life? Well, I, I think there were I don't know exciting particularly, but most interesting to me was how she. Uh, kind of carved your own life her uh, as a young woman in New York uh, in the 1920s particularly her father had a very successful business she was raised as a not that she didn't have the typical lower east side first generation immigrant experience they lived in a freestanding brownstone in Harlem which was a very an up and coming middle class neighborhood and they had their own car she uh, was had the benefit of, of a fair amount of privilege for an early 20th century Jewish, basically uh, first-generation American. So in the early 20s, as a kid of in her late teens, she became interested in the world around her. She got very interested in the world of Broadway, and, and uh, which of course, that was the heyday of the Broadway musical. It was the early days of Gershwin and Rogers and Hart and Jerome Kern and the the Ziegfeld Follies, and all of that became part of her life. And then sometime a little bit later in the early 1930s, which in her mind certainly was the most interesting part of her life, she got very much involved with kind of Jewish left-wing politics in New York City, with particular emphasis on something that was very compelling in London as well, which was the Spanish Civil War. So that she, she was able to... Uh, find a great deal of meaning for herself in the world around her. I mean, other women could have, they didn't stay home and watch TV in those days, but they, you know, kind of could have frittered their lives away in more frivolous manners. And she was intent on creating meaning for herself. So at that particular time, though, young Jewish women, as she was, spent most of their time in the house cooking, and she wasn't going to be one of those. Is that right? Yeah, that was not part of her orientation at all. Again, it's not, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the literature of Jewish immigrants in London and in New York, and the expectations were not that she would stay home, and, uh, you know, she never referenced that. I think her own mother in some way wanted more for her than that, and certainly her father did. I think it's somewhat atypical for, you know, for when most people think of the first generation Jewish American experience, they think of the, you know, you're familiar with the Henry Roth characters or, uh, you know, the uh, Balabatisha the woman on the Lower East Side, you know, she would have none of that. So she grew up in, uh, you know, there was a period of tremendous liberation, not only for women, but for the whole culture the 1920s was with the year of the flapper girl and Zelda Fitzgerald and all that kind of stuff and so she had very much part of that she also had a lot of intellectual curiosity she was very very she was an autodidact when she never went to college not because she couldn't but she chose not to few women particularly Jewish women were going to college at that time and it wasn't a question of economics it was just not something that they were doing but she was you know she she was busy her whole life taking classes she took classes at the 
Columbia University. She had a wonderful school in New York, the New School. She took classes in these labor, left-wing labor colleges. She got very involved with that. And as I said, she got very, very involved with the effort to help the Spanish loyalists. That was a big part of, of her of her life that continued well after the war. You know, after the war was over in 39, with 38 in Spain, but it continued for the participants well into the 1950s in their heads, you know. The other thing is, you know, I, I was born and raised in New York. I've lived in Buffalo for many years. And, and people here, Jewish people and non-Jewish people, are amazed by the fact that I grew up in a Jewish household, but I never had a bar mitzvah. Nobody in my family did. But, you know, people are amazed that you could be identified very strongly as Jewish and still not have a religious connection. That's a, to me, and when I was growing up, was perfectly normal. And that's how my mother and father raised us. So, but here in a smaller town where there's a very small number of Jewish people, where people are much more, you know, they're yes. more concerned about identifying as Jewish. And we didn't have to worry about it because everybody in the world was Jewish. Even the six foot two inch blonde guys were Jewish. I yeah, thought. I, I understand that. Well, it's, it's, it's a fascinating book with fascinating pictures in it. And you make her sound a most fascinating woman, and I do congratulate you, and thank you very much indeed, and I, I, shall, I shall treasure this book, Tilly, very much indeed, and I, I'm sure it will be tremendously successful. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us from Buffalo. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, many of our students have gone back to uni a little while ago. They've all settled in. And many of them spent their Hagim, the Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, on campus because this year term started before the Hagim. And this is where the incredible offices of Chabad and chaplaincy and others on campus come in. I'm lucky enough to be chatting to Rabbi Mendy Lent from Nottingham Chabad. Chabad is unbelievable, and I'm not going to spare your blushes here when I say that together with your wife, co-director, Bracha Lent, who is quite extraordinary, you are known as being incredibly welcoming, and you have cooked for the students over 1,500 meals in one month. How do you do it? What do you do? I will tell you, it, it involves very, very little sleep. <laughs> and an absolute gargantuan amount of hard work, really, like, I, I, I could never, it, it's not really physically possible, the things that she's done. We've had, you know, chefs have come and they said, oh, this, this should take a team of people. You know, how have you done this? And the particular difficult thing this year is that you've had Yom Tov and then, like, one or two days break and then a Shabbos and then another break, two days, and... I'm not sure people realize what it means to pair for another 150 people at each meal with like one day's break in between them. And students are not well known for RSVPing with good time. She is, my wife Rocha is tremendously organized. And, you know, she thinks well in advance and everything's, you know, frozen and defrosted, you know. So she, yeah, very little sleep and a lot of time on her feet. Uh, it really is wonderful. And the students, of course, they don't see anything of this. Hopefully a few of them come and help you, but they, they just see that the swan at the top, the beautiful sort of everything everything laid out. What yeah, people assume everything happens when magic. It just happens. It's fairy dust. Some very wonderful, thoughtful students that do offer to come and help and prepare. Some of them have got the necessary skills to make it all happen. 
others help in other areas. They might be just looking after the kids or setting tables. But every student that comes and offers the help is really greatly appreciated. And of course, we rely on the generosity of parents to help make it happen as well. People often don't realize the tremendous cost involved in doing all that. So, well, as you um, mentioned, yeah. the cost. How do you go about raising funds? Luckily, you know, word of mouth. We students will often tell their parents, "Oh, this is what's going on." It's it's not as not as 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 common as we would like that to be. But you know, those parents who have sponsored, we you know we announced it that this whole meal happened because of them. And then other students will go back and tell their parents, "Would you like to sponsor a Shabbat?" Well, obviously, we have mailings and, and, and Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur things go out and, and Rosh Hashanah will try and keep, the parents, keep so the parents updated with what's going on. And we will email parents directly. On top of all this preparation, you're also fundraising. It's a two, it really should be a whole team of people. It is at the moment just the two of us. Yeah, it, there's very little time for, for much else during this period, you know. Apart from feeding the students, what do you hope that they get out of the whole Chabad experience? So there's, there's so much. For many students, it's at least that a touch of Jewish life during a very, very mundane week, you know, kind of the, the, the oasis in the desert. People, students tell us, you know, the whole week, we, we look forward, we wait until you, until you put your RSVP status on Facebook. We can't wait. This is the time that we, you know, we feel at home again. So some people, it's that, that will be their only connection, it will be a Friday night dinner. And for that, I'm happy that at least they're having kosher food and they're spending a couple of times in the Jewish environment. Whether or not that leads to further involvement is irrelevant. Obviously, we'd love people to get further involved. But, you know, I just got a message from an alumni who left like eight, nine years ago. And, and he said, you don't realize that those songs that you sing on a Friday night in that atmosphere, I'm now singing those to my son. Even you know, I never thought I would be doing Friday night dinners. But... That has that effect on me. So that, that's one effect. There are, we also, you know, we, we try and go around the tables and talk to students to build up a relationship that they want to get a bit more involved in any other programs we're doing. Well, are you doing a matchmaking program? Come on, you can tell us. <laughs> I'm not doing an official matchmaking <laughs> not official program. One. But, I, but I'm currently in Israel about to officiate at the wedding of a couple who, who, met, at, who met at Chabad um, in 2013. So um, that's a wonderful side product of the things that we do. Get a lot of pride and joy to be, especially to be invited to, to, to perform on the wedding. That, well, that's that's really wonderful, and of course that that is the connection that they've kept with you. You you help with those with those tentacles to keep them to keep them connected. Just so that you can sort of picture, because people don't know what it is at Chabad. I, I happen to have been to the to the Nottingham to the barn. Tell tell us a little bit about what the physical place is like. What is a Chabad house like? Okay, and again, Chabad is kind of just have to fit to the community that they're in. They, they try to fit what, what the needs are of that, of that particular community. So in Nottingham, well, we, we do a lot of work with the wider community as well and the shul. Our main focus has been for, you know, all these years with the students. So we've, we've rented a couple of houses and just sat people. We've had our last house, we had people sitting on the stairs, on the floor, tiny little place but people the students would rather come and sit on the floor or sit outside in the rain and eat and then not be part of it and after some various difficulties with housing and having to leave a couple of properties with the generosity of, of parents and friends we were able to secure a, a, a large property my one request from the trap from the estate agents was that i need to have a room that i can sit 100 people in 
And eventually we found the tremendous, it's actually a 17th century grade two listed building. It has, it's obviously a home that we live and the students feel at home in as well. But it gives us, we have a huge, can we call it the barn, that I can sit about 115 people in. And, you know, that's very old and rustic and it has a lot of time to it. And we also... Overflow crowds are eating in other rooms and hallways and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't stop people not having a seat in the main room. So that is, thank God, it's a big, large property. In the gardens, we've had marquees for 250, 300 people, and we have a large sucker. We had 230 people in of a sucker, you know. Mendy, mental health on campus is always an issue. How has Chabad been helping? It is indeed. We've had a, this year. We've been inundated with with contact by parents whose kids are struggling. We have partnered up with. Jamie, the fantastic mental health, Jewish mental health organization. We are working in partnership with them. We help. We have a few students who are now undergoing mental health training. My wife and I have undergone that. We are referring people, talking to people, spending a lot of time on that. So people with any kind of issues are free to come to us at any time. And really, if they just need a shoulder to cry on or referring for further help, then we're there for them. If we could just leave the students with a, with a thought, or, or what would you would you like them to take home from their experience of Chabad? If you could if you could encapsulate it, of course. So there are many people who feel that it's a, it's an all or nothing. You know, you're either a secular Jew or a or a religious Jew, and you know very often the first thing people tell me that you know is, "Oh, Rabbi, I'm a bad Jew," and I'm like, "Well, I'm not a priest. You don't need to do confession. There is no such thing as a bad Jew. We're all essentially a part of God, which." which is infinite and pure and can never be tainted. Sometimes it gets covered over with various layers of dirt and dust that, you know, throughout the year. But, but that, that the, the essential Nasham soul is absolutely pure and every single Jew is just as Jewish and just as holy as Moses. So all I encourage people to do is to take on one little thing, you know, try and move one little drop out of you um, and one more thing. That, that creates a connection to God. It's not up to me to decide who's going to do what. But if you can, if you can create that connection, then then that's the greatest thing. Because you know, I, I often compare it to like in, you know, on a dial-up modem, and, and each kind of mitzvah you do adds another strand, and 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 you become closer to God, who is the source of blessings and brings great things to your life. So, right. If everybody can do one one more little thing. That transforms the world. To Thank a, you. That's a lovely place. message. So one thing, we'll, we, they'll, gonna, that'll be the message to go out. One more thing, please. Thank you very much, you. and um, and keep on doing it. It's wonderful. Thank you. Pleasure. Lovely to speak to you. Thanks Thank for you. having me. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Well, I have stepped out of the confines of JW3 and I've stepped into a rather famous kitchen, to say the least. It belongs to one Denise Phillips, our Jewish domestic goddess, and I'm utterly delighted to say that Denise joins me now. Why I hear you cry? Well, because as mitzvah day is virtually around the corner or possibly just been and gone, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, of course, it means that... You wouldn't necessarily think of Mitzvah Day as something you associate with food, or would you? Well, to explain more, let us turn to Denise and find out a little more about why there may well be a food association with Mitzvah Day and its rather special 10th anniversary, which we'll find out about as well. Denise, welcome to The Jewish Views. I suppose it begs the question, what is the connection to Mitzvah Day and food? 
Well, as I say, Mitzvah Day this year celebrates 10 years, which is on the 17th of November. And I just want to describe a little bit about Mitzvah Day, what it really means and how it connects with food, because it's not just about acts of kindness, charity food of every description, but also tick on alarm, helping to take care of our environment. And why not connect it with food? Because there are so many food charities out there, whether it's soup kitchens, food banks, food delivery services, which also need our help and contribute And they really do appreciate whatever little thing we do. Just taking the time is massive. Thinking about them is really appreciated. A small donation. You know, there are shops out there where you can just put in, you know, something from your supermarket trolley and pop that in. But I've got a few suggestions of how we can really make this work even better. Having worked with the soup kitchens... We can connect with our communities, with our friends, with our families and make something. But a few tips in advance, because very often they have rules about what you can and can't take in. So I would give them a call, whichever charity you're planning to donate to. Some of them don't accept containers that have been opened, products that have been expired, homemade dishes, ingredients like rice, beans, oats, peanut butter, pasta and tinge, you know, those kind of ready-made or tins may be great but perhaps they've got an excess of that so why don't you think about the spices the condiments maybe the food banks have got a ton of those staple foods but they're lacking in a bit of flavor so salt and pepper you know doesn't make you fill out the gap but it'll certainly make it a bit more inspiring and delicious you know pepper mayonnaise mustard ketchup spicy sauces can all be added to rice and our pasta dish or rice dishes that make life a bit more exciting but food connection can go a little bit further you know are you planning on a simcha give your caterer or venue a call and ask them what their food policy is because maybe they have a a system that they can do something with the leftovers and again it's a two-way process check with the charity and check with your venue and your caterer You can also ask your friends and family, Friday night dinners, you know, you don't really need another bunch of flowers or another box of chocolates. Ask them either to donate directly with either a link to a charity that you want to give to or collect money yourself and do that. Or, you know, maybe some produce that you can then give to the charity yourself. But as I say, food goes a little bit step further with mitzvah day because it's tick on alum helping to care for the environment the key word for this year next year and the future is food sustainability just just think about our own kitchen fridge something that perhaps we do throw out far too much how much waste do you throw what do you do with your leftovers check the dates you know maybe you can think about reducing the amount of food spoilage throwing away and after all that's going to affect your food bill why don't you adopt a meat-free monday or schedule a few vegetarian meals weekly reducing the consumption of beef and sheep is an effective way to reduce greenhouse emissions i'm not saying that you've got to go vegan but to help the world you know one day i think to be perfectly honest i think it's rather nice rings are changes i mean certainly couldn't eat meat every day myself and then priorities whole foods enjoying a whole food diet which means choosing foods that have not been processed and or refined it's certainly healthier for you and certainly will be a lot less expensive 
But you can also use whole foods in a way to recreate things. So use your carrot peelings and herb stalks in dips, stews, soups, stir fries, or make a stock and soup using these ingredients as well. So I know that, you know, we've all got our ideas about it all, but you could take your bags, not just the carrier bags, but as, you know, cloth bag and baskets to the supermarkets again you're reducing it's all about food and reducing costs there or visit bulk or scoop health food stores and why not you know, good chance it's going to be a healthier option and perhaps a fresher option but when you buy nuts and seeds and grains in a glass jars brought from home what about your lunchbox what happens there? Take your own lunch to work or in a reusable container instead of buying takeaways. Buy your own reusable coffee and take to cafes instead of relying on takeaway containers. So I've given you quite a lot to think about. A lot of suggestions, tasty options. But I've got a very good soup recipe that I think is really quick. It's healthy. It's on a budget. So whether you are giving the ingredients to make on a soup kitchen or you're making it already done. This is just, it's, it's called creamy sweet potato and chickpea. There's no cream in it. It's the chickpeas that make it creamy. And I think regardless of who you're cooking for, it's a healthy option. So it's made with just red onions, sweet potatoes and chickpeas, flavoured with a little uh, coriander. Like all soups, you're putting it in the pot, frying the onions and adding your vegetables, adding the stock, whizzing it together. And it's very tasty. So bon appetit and best dishes from Denise Phillips. That was Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips talking about mitzvah day. Now our rabbinic thought for the month comes from Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. This time of the year, we are reading on Shabbat morning, the book of Genesis, Boratius. And Boratius is an extraordinary book. It covers an enormous time period, far more than the rest of the Torah and the rest of the Jewish Bible put together. It starts with creation, goes through all the early generations of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, right to Noah and the flood. And we're already 20 generations on by the time you reach Abraham and Sarah, who are the founders of monotheism and ultimately the ancestors of the Jewish people. What a huge swathe of ideas. But if you think about what the Torah is supposed to be, the average reader imagines it's a history and law book of the Jewish people. Our ups and downs, our origins with the family we just mentioned of Abraham and Sarah, their children that eventually become a larger number, 70, who go down to Egypt, have troubles there and come out in a grand exodus, receive the Torah, go to the promised land and get a whole load of laws to explain how to maintain their identity and to express their relationship with God. And I suppose that's true. The trouble is, if that's the case, what are the first 50 chapters of the Torah doing? The book of Boratius Genesis, which talk about prehistory and a family that have not yet received these laws and are not yet a people. This is a question which is very ancient. It's been asked since the very earliest times. And it really is answered quite simply that it's to demonstrate that God runs the show. That by whatever means, and I don't think we need to take every word of the Genesis story literally, although the concept, of course, is fundamental to Jewish belief that God creates the world and the universe and everything in it. And as such, he owns it. And as such, he can allocate the resources in it as he wishes. 
That means that various nations have certain roles. They are players on the scene of history and God gives them their role, expects them to fulfill them, gives us and them other chances and when it goes wrong may have to press the reset button from time to time. All of that is to set the scene for the main players in the Torah, not the only players but the main players, the Jewish people, but without the background, without the sense that God builds relationships with individuals not in a capricious way but because they have certain qualities, certain strengths, certain weaknesses, certain propensities. He wishes the Jewish people to go to a certain place and he has to set the scene for that which will become the promised land. Without the background that Genesis Beratius provides, the rest of the story seems thin, it seems out of context and hard to understand. So as we're reading the book of Genesis at this time of the year, look at the stories, see that the human experience rather than just the lives of individuals are described in it. But also realize that without the context, without the background, without the first 50 chapters that comprise this majestic and enormously long book of Genesis, it's very difficult to understand the rest of the Torah, the role of the Jewish people, the exodus from Egypt, the entry to the promised land, and in fact, the role of the Jewish people on the world stage. Thank you very much to Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our thought for the month. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much to all of our guests, to Rabbi Jeffrey Newman, Rabbi Mendy Lent, Mark Goldman, Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips, and, of course, we mustn't forget to thank our producer, Sue Greenberg, who, again, works tirelessly putting this programme together. And, of course, thank you at home for listening. Do remember that you can listen to this or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3, but from me, Phil Dave. And from me, Kate Fulton. And from me, Clive Roslin. We hope you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.